Hey there, you're tuned in to WIUX LP Bloomington. My name is Angela Bautista, and I'm your host today for American Student Radio. This week's episode is all about dreams. Scientifically speaking, we're not exactly sure why we dream, but dreams are a powerful force in our lives. They embody our desires, our fears, our greater aspirations. We've got some great radio for you today about dreamers, dreams, and dreams come true. Stick around. From Bloom... <laughs> from... Uh, okay, live... Li- what is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington... From Indiana University in Bloomington... This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens. Conspiracy. Journalism. And lesbians. My parents were the first and only ones in their families to immigrate to the United States from the Philippines. They came to this country with the hopes of a better life, a life of prosperity and success, the quintessential American dream. But is this dream the same for everyone? I decided to find out. So in your words, what does the American dream look like? It looks like, um, I guess, just succeeding in whatever you want to do. For me, the American dream is just making it big. earn a lot of money. American dream to me looks like having a steady job, a house that you own, or apartment that you pay for, and actually have the money to actually live, to eat. (laughs) I guess somebody who got their life together, such as um, having their spouse and house and kids and, I don't know, successful jobs and something. Um, I think the American dream is... Knowing that you're able to do something, even if you're not in the best circumstances. It means the ability to, uh, like, if you have a goal in life, like, say you want to be like a, I don't know, be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and that's the ability to reach it, and that wouldn't be possible if it wasn't in America. Okay, so do you believe in the American dream? Uh, I mean, there are challenges, but I think so. For the most part, I think uh, the United States provides um, more opportunity than other countries do, relatively. Um, I believe in the concept of the American dream, but not necessarily like uh, the American aspect. I think uh, the American dream is something that like everyone should have like across nations. Um, my dad is actually from Venezuela. He came here because he wanted his kids to have a better life. And I think that turned out pretty well, considering I'm at college now and both my brothers are doing well and everything. So I do. I still believe that, you know, you work hard in this country, you'll get ahead. Because I think that this country was founded on, I guess, like, values that we should still hold today and that that people can still aspire to. I think just having a dream is the American dream or anything. The old American dream, the white picket fence in the house, and that one is you work hard and you're successful now. And do you think the American dream is accessible to everyone? Uh, I don't think so. I think uh, uh, certain people have uh, institutionalized disadvantages that make it harder for them to achieve it. So, so given those like institutional barriers, do you still believe in it? Overall, yes, because I, I believe the, the dream is actually stronger when people overcome institutionalized barriers. But I mean, what I think should happen is we should make it more possible for people to reach their dream. But... I don't know. 
Seems like the world's changing so much. It's hard to even picture an American dream anymore. Because it seems like you work hard, they just take. I feel like working for nothing sometimes. <laughs> I don't know. At one point, I used to have an American dream, but now I don't even dream anymore. Music from that piece comes from Dr. Turtle. Often when talking about raising the minimum wage, critics say minimum wage jobs are merely the first stepping stones to achieving success. In this next piece, ASR producer Megan Tackett talks to two fast food workers striving to make that dream possible. Imagine your first job. Maybe you spent afternoons folding shirts at the mall or babysitting your neighbor's kids. Or, like me and many other Americans, your first job was working in fast food. I learned a lot of skills during my four years cooking and fulfilling orders, and I make sure to treat fast food workers with the respect they deserve because I was once in their shoes. However, today's fast food workers are no longer just teens looking for extra spending money. According to the New York Times, the average fast food worker is 29 years old, may have a family to provide for, and is likely working two jobs to make ends meet. This is a story about the rewards, challenges, and daily lives of some fast food workers right here in Bloomington, Indiana. I asked Amber, a 22-year-old senior at IU, how she balanced working 40 hours a week at McDonald's while taking a full load of classes. I would find myself falling asleep in class or sleeping through class just because I'd be getting home at 6, 7, or 8 in the morning and then having to go to class at 10, and I would try to get some sleep, but then I wouldn't be able to wake up. So I'd either sleep through class or sleep in class. So it was definitely hard to manage all that and trying to get all my homework done and everything. She was part of their management team and just recently left McDonald's to pursue working at a daycare, which is a job relating to her major of elementary education. She said she was one of the only workers in college. To everyone else, McDonald's paid the bills. There are people I worked with, they're like moms and dads. They had kids. I worked with one girl that is currently pregnant. Um, Just, yeah, just families a lot. Just moms and dads trying to, like, be their only job or they'd have a couple other jobs. I can't imagine trying to do that and, like, raise a family and support a family off of that. They are the only jobs these people can find. Another Bloomington resident named Jason is 32 and works at both Fazoli's and Qdoba. He talks about why he decides to work two jobs. Just wanting more, like everybody else in life. Um, Everybody grows up with the uh, nice little fancy dream of the big white house and the picket fence and two cars, family, kids. I mean, if they don't dream about that, then they're dreaming about making a lot of money and being successful in life. Um... I kind of grew up on the opposite side of tracks of all that. Like, the dreams were there, but the possibility of it wasn't. Jason works 60 to 75 hours a week total at both jobs. From 4 p.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning, he's working hard for his paychecks. I asked him where some of that money goes each week. He says one complete paycheck usually goes to bills, while the rest goes to spending money or providing for his nine-year-old daughter. Yeah, paying the child support is the reason why I had to get a second job, because I put out $400 a month in child support, so that literally takes like a quarter to half of my check every month from one job. On top of the responsibilities of working my job, it does create some stress level, but when I get around my daughter, it kind of just all recedes back, and I forget about the world for a second. Jason's not the only parent you can find in a drive-thru. This year, the Atlantic reported that over a quarter of fast food workers have a child. Yet, many people still think of fast food as a job for teenagers. 
when in fact these workers are relying on minimum wage for a job that can be much more difficult than it looks. Both Amber and Jason say that time management, ability to handle stress, and people skills are crucial for succeeding at work. A lot of people are looking at the establishment and the people that work in it like your job's not that hard or it can't be that bad. But if you ever walk in during lunch rush or dinner rush and you see you got 10 people in front and you got a car, you got drive throughs with cars wrapped around the building, I mean, that's the time that we see that we should be making more money because we're basically trying to pull and use every skill that we have in that job set to make sure that you're satisfied with what you're getting. And at 725 an hour or 750 an hour higher in, it's not a lot for anybody. Across the country, many places like New York City and Seattle have voted to raise the minimum wage to compete with a higher standard of living. While Indiana is a relatively cheaper place to live, many people are still struggling to survive on 725 an hour. The well, the store in particular that I worked at, and the people I worked with, um, they had like Section Eight housing. It was definitely paycheck to paycheck. Um, it was just it looked like this was like their job that they depended on. Not only are these workers facing challenges economically, but socially too. There's a stigma surrounding working in fast food. That means it's not always fun to tell people where you work. Well, when I would tell people I'd work at McDonald's, they'd kind of be like, "Oh, like." why are you working there and like they just see it as like that oh if you can't find another job that's the job you go to a lot of people that i tell where i'm working at they're just happy enough to know that you know you have a job and you're not running around in the streets doing something stupid other people you run into is you just kind of get this this look or this tone in their voice as if like you're you're not doing that great in life Jason described that many people see fast food as a stepping stone in their career. He doesn't want to move on from the industry because it's part of his passion for food. I mean, it's stressful, but I managed to get through the day. It's what I love to do. I love cooking food. I love serving people fresh food and, you know, seeing the enjoyment on their face when they bite in and, you know, realize they got something good sitting in front of them. Um, do I see myself doing anything else or trying to move on to a job that pays more that's not in fast food? or in a restaurant, no. Opposers to raising the minimum wage may argue that since fast food is a job that requires no college education, these workers don't deserve to be making more money. What many people don't know is that 30% of these workers have been in college, and moving up to higher-paying jobs isn't always so easy. Jason has all the skills needed to take on a management position at work, but he faces some challenges due to decisions he made in the past. The lifestyle I chose when I was younger, I accumulated a, co a couple felonies, which now in this society, they actually frown upon the felonies and do not promote anybody with one. Of course, I won't go any higher because if I do a background check, my background check will come back as a felony in 2003, which even though it was that long ago, they still won't look over it. Jason's faced other obstacles, too. He recently got hurt and fractured his eye socket pretty badly. He needed three surgeries and was out of work for two weeks. That's two weeks without a paycheck. Luckily, he was able to get some financial help and return to work at both jobs. He says his employers were understanding. They like him because of his reliability and hard work ethic. My greatest strengths and what my bosses rely on me for is the ability that I, I show up on time about 95% of the time. Um, I'm very reliable, dedicated, uh, 
basically willing to do whatever they ask me to do. And then on top of that, I just don't work my area. I'm willing to go outside my area to help other employees or pick up the slack in another area. So I, I would say those qualities is the reason why my employers like me. But there's still a long way to go. Many of these workers are not offered benefits like health insurance or vacation time or the ability to work the amount of hours that they want to. I asked Jason what improvements can be made to the system. What would make you even a little more happier at work? Just a chance to go somewhere. I know and I, and I do see like not everybody deserves a chance. And there, there, there has been people that come from a lifestyle or background like mine that have been given a chance and easily messed that up. The more sincere crew members and employees that work fast food, we're not asking for 15 bucks an hour, but we're asking for something higher than what you're giving us. And something better is benefits than nothing. Because, you know, for us that makes it, that make it our passion to show up every day, to make sure, you know, there's hot food, to make sure there's quality food, to make sure that this establishment and this fast food restaurant is going to succeed in what their goal was to begin with. Those people that come in and, and do that for their jobs, they deserve to get paid higher than minimum wage. The opportunity to work in an environment that you enjoy while making a living wage shouldn't be only reserved for nine to five jobs. By caring about these workers, we can take care of the people who work so hard to feed us. For American Student Radio, I'm Megan Tackett. The ability to dream is, in effect, the ability to seek out one's destiny. Next, we look through America's past to find that in the land of opportunity, not all of us were allowed to dream. ASR producer Bryce Green brings us this story. Darkies never dream. They must laugh and sing all day. The song you're hearing is Darkies Never Dream, performed by Ethel Waters in the 1936 film Bubbling Over. The lyrics paint a picture of a world where impoverished African Americans are unable to achieve a better life or even hope for one. Now, Bubbling Over was written, scored, and produced completely by white people, and if you watch the film, that fact is abundantly clear. The characters embody the Sambo archetype. That is to say, they were lazy or ignorant. In fact, the use of an all-black cast was really a gimmick meant to gain the intrigue of white audiences. But even though the lyrics weren't written by someone who was oppressed, the words struck a familiar chord in the black community. They echoed the struggle for equality as old as the country itself. But have things really changed? The concept of the American dream has morphed and pivoted a bit over the years, but its main tenet still remains to be self-made prosperity. Pulling yourself up by your bootstraps was the way to achieve greatness and fortune and became the allure for millions. But in the days of slavery and even in the decades following, this dream was all but impossible to attain for people of color. After the Civil War, the newly freed slaves had little access to proper education or means for gainful employment. There was little hope of social mobility and thus began the circle of poverty that still negatively affects minority populations today. Blacks would grow up poor and die poor with little hope of improving their situations. Why should they dream? What good would it do to yearn?
In the 1920s, the Harlem Renaissance brought black art and culture to the forefront of American society for the first time. Black artists were beginning to see their bleak view of the future turn into hopes and aspirations. Missouri-born Langston Hughes was one of the biggest voices to spring from the age. He often wrote short stanzas focusing on the African-American plight. In fact, he was criticized by black intellectuals of the day for portraying black lives in such a negative manner. Either way, Hughes garnered respect from audiences and critics alike for his pieces like Let America Be America Again. This piece exposes the fantastic lie that is the American dream for the poor peoples of this country. One of its stanzas reads, O oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free, equality is in the air we breathe. There has never been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. To Hughes, the country that was built on the backs of slaves and continued to oppress its minorities unabashedly has no business claiming the American dream to be something available to all of its citizens. He called out the nation for promoting the ideal American life when for many of his people, the dream was likely to remain only that. The Jim Crow South continued to segregate and oppress minorities and many blacks in America saw this as unlikely to change. This wasn't the mindset of the individuals who, in the 1950s and 60s, participated in the civil rights protests around the country. The people who walked miles to work during the Montgomery bus boycotts or those who marched on the Edmund Pettus Bridge at Selma. These men and women were dreamers, advocates of change, even though the odds were against them. One of the most powerful voices of the movement was Martin Luther King, a man with one of the most famous dreams in American history. Freedom and justice, I have a dream. That my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. For people of color, these words embolden a generation. It was a cry for the end of centuries of mistreatment and discrimination. It was a dream for the future without racism and oppression. The movements of the 60s led to legislation such as the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, both of which aided the advancement of people of color. There was a general feel of optimism following this time. Black incomes rose and blatant racism was reduced and the American dream truly began to mean something. And CNN can now project that Barack Obama, 47 years old, will become the president-elect of the United States. We project he now has... When Barack Obama won his bid for the presidency in 2008, millions of people bought into his message of hope and change. People around the nation looked at the first president of color as an icon. His time in office was a sign to many that the old America, full of racism and hatred, was finally beginning to die out. Of course, no one will tell you that things are perfect. Some disagree as to whether Obama's election has changed the course of our nation at all, especially given the current political climate. But I would argue that millions of people, millions of dreamers, still carry hope for the future. For American Student Radio, I'm Bryce Green, and happy Black History Month.
Thanks to our first-time producer, Bryce Green, for that awesome piece. Now, I want you to think back to the last dream you had. Do you remember it? If you do, what was it like? What did it look like? Feel like? Smell like? In other words, how do you dream? Producer Sabrina Darrow has more. At least sometimes I have dreamed like as if in the dream in the first person but then also I remember that I have have had like dreams where I'm kind of like looking at myself what I'm doing um, black and white I don't think so I, I think I dream in color <laughs> in 2011 Dr. Ruben Neyman said dreaming is a natural neurological art it collects unresolved pain confusion grief and fear and it rearranges all this bad stuff into a good form It creates collages and creatively transforms our dark stuff into something cohesive, presentable, and imaginative, even if more mysterious. So I was curious to figure out, how do you dream? Okay, this is really weird, but I don't remember any of my dreams at all. But, like, when I do, I dream in first person, I guess. Well, it's usually in color, and it's usually not quite first person. I'm, like, like, I can see myself, but, like, from the back. If that makes any sense. You, when you talk about it and think about it, it's got to be in color. I don't dream with words. I dream with, like, impressions. So, like, I don't ever speak in my dreams. Like, last night I was dreaming and uh, my friend came to me and I felt the response and that was it. And that was it. <laughs> I don't think it's black and white, but I'm not sure now. <laughs> I dream... If I'm thinking about something, going to bed, I will be thinking about that in my dream somehow or some way. I remember a lot more in the morning than I do as a day. I just kind of progressively forget about it, I guess. Usually it's first person, but it's not always about me. Sometimes it's from the perspective of another person. Well, one I used to have as a kid, it's really weird, is I'd be in the woods, it'd be dark, I'd be being chased by, like, this six-foot-tall hummingbird. I have had a reoccurring dream where, like, it's just like I'm trapped and, like, I can't leave, like, a house. But that was when I was younger, so I haven't had that in, like, years. I have reoccurring dreams of weird aliens stealing me. (laughs) It's kind of funny. (laughs) Um, I have reoccurring dreams of, like, important people in my life that I've lost, like my grandma my grandpa and stuff like that. I talk to her about, like, anything that I feel, like, stressed about or worried about. Like, she's actually there. Like, anything that I would talk to her about in real life. I tend to remember mine a lot, a couple times a week, probably. I usually tend to forget it later on in the day, but it's usually, like, the first ten minutes I wake up. Our last piece for this episode dips into how the hours between closing our eyes and rolling out of bed can transform throughout our lives. For producer Emily Miles' aunt, dreams have been everything from vivid glimpses of the future to modes of reconciling the past, but they've always been important. My uncle Doc and my dad were in the hallway and they flicked a lighter. Um, They were showing something up on the ceiling, right? And then... The next thing I know, the house burns down. Curtis, your dad, died. Of course, he was a baby then. So this had to have been about 1965. 
and I am outside now in the backyard and on the swing set there are all these plates and bowls they were this olive green color and a light yellow and a light blue and a peach and they were stacked really high and my mom came up to me as I was standing there by all these dishes and she said you did this you did this you broke the house down you killed your brother blah 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 and she took the lighter that uncle doc had and she flicked it on me and burnt me up and that was my dream and i've told mom many times oh i can't believe you had that dream why do you always have bad dreams about me which is is unusual that i I had a lot of dreams where my mom was mean to me when she never was in real life that's constance ferrari she's my aunt and my godmother my father's sister. We're in her southern Indiana sunroom, but it's not so sunny out today. Her little beagle Dickens jingles his tags now and again. My dreams um, were extremely vivid when I was young, really young, and I can still remember some of my very first dreams. Three Three of them come to my mind immediately when we start talking about this. I used to share them orally with people, you know, of course my mom, they changed for me. Um, I was once I was on antidepressants. Um, it muted them quite a bit, and at first I was upset about it, and then later I was relieved because I was sleeping, and I wasn't getting up and spending a half of day writing down my dreams, recording my dreams on tape, and then analyzing my dreams. And talking about my dreams, um, because then I was like, I'm living more in a dream world than I am in the real world. She's had quite the history with dreaming, from an unreasonably vengeful mother to visions of the future, from obsessive analyses to hopes for closure impossible in the waking world. Now, we're still in Evansville, but it's 1975. Constance is with her best friend, Jenny. We were in a pink, like Barbie doll pink, um ice cream shop and it was everything was real pretty it was like a little parlor and I could see the chairs and I could see all these things and it was just she and I and then the next thing I know a blue car drives in and runs her over and actually falls on top of her and kills her this was probably when I was 17 18 years old and we were hanging out and I told her about the dream and she was laughing and she said oh I don't know why I'm laughing because your silly dreams come true and so that was that and then I don't know maybe a couple of weeks later my mom received a phone call from a woman and she was crying and all she could hear was this crying woman and she said you know my baby's dead my baby's dead and my mom's like you know who is this and she said it's Viola and she said oh what you know and and so she said you know, Jenny was killed in a car wreck, and she said, and and Connie, which is what they called me then, dreamt it. She dreamt it, and she told Jenny. This was a rough time. That stayed with me for a long time, and I had a really hard time coming to terms with what that meant, and was that just a coincidence? Because what we found out was that the vehicle that hit her was a blue vehicle, and it did, in fact, turn over on top of her. It was just a few years after my dad died, and then another man I had died that I'd had a vision of. Um, I didn't have a dream about it. I just had a vision of it, 
and he died like two days after I had the vision. And so I was gun shy or whatever, dream shy. And then I had a dream and it was a gray day, big rocks. And I'm sitting on the rock and I'm crying and Jenny appears and she looks wonderful. And I'm pointing to the ground or the rocks or something like you need to go in there or whatever and she's like I'm not in there I'm okay I'm not in there I never had another dream of Jenny and I was at peace with her now it's the 80s and the psychiatric community is just beginning to replace the term manic depression with bipolar disorder the sicker I got the more I delved into that. I don't know if I was hiding or if I was searching or what. In the beginning, of course, it was a self-discovery of just cool things. And then later, um, I started realizing that they were masking something or they were trying to tell me something. And I was, I liked that life better than my own life. So I was recording everything, writing them down, recording them on cassettes and then sitting down with a book and trying to decipher them and make sense out of them. And when I wasn't analyzing them, they were still vibrantly alive during my day. And so I would think, well, apparently there's something, there's a reason why I'm remembering these dreams. And so I should uh, delve into them. So we descended into the basement in search of those tapes. She didn't analyze her dreams in a vacuum, though. I've learned a lot about dream analysis. I mean, I have a little bit of training in it, actually. And when I was in therapy, I did a lot of that in the end uh, of our sessions. And also then, I have a nun friend. She also was keen on uh, dream analysis, and she gave me some more spiritual-type books. When I was doing them on my own, I was using these dream books, you know, and they would say if you dreamt of a wedding, there was going to be a funeral, you know, the crazy stuff. It's difficult to analyze other people's dreams. An example, one time I dreamt I'm driving and I'm getting ready to go under the underpass and there are about four million green olives everywhere. So he told me, what is going on with you right now? What do you feel overwhelmed with? How do you feel about olives, first of all? And then, you know, what do the olives signify? Who are they in your life right now? The problem is, she analyzed so much that other people began coming to her. I would get phone calls from people I didn't even know very well, and they would say, I had this dream, and can you just tell me what this means? I don't uh, analyze them anymore that way. I don't waste my time doing that. Now, if I remember a dream, I'm kind of excited because I, I still don't have um, the vivid memories like I used to. Antidepressants and anxiolytics have muted her dreams for a couple decades now. But after her husband Tom passed away, she searched for a message, a lot like the one she received from Jenny. I quit taking my anti-anxiety medicine every night, and then I'd go to bed, and I would dream of things, imagine things, and then go to sleep and hope that I would force the hand that I've been looking for. But when she does remember her dreams, if they're interesting enough, she still writes them down. And put them together. Now, some people will say, well, it's all random, so it doesn't matter. It's just, you know, it means nothing. But I don't believe that. I believe that there's a purpose for them, definitely a purpose for them. You just have to be careful not to immerse yourself in them so much to where you're not living your real life. 
So we never found the old tapes. I guess they were fleeting. A lot like dreams. But we did find this. Thanks to Abby Gibson for help with this piece, and to Fleetwood Mac for decades of music. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Emily Miles. And with that, we conclude our show. Thanks so much for listening. For American Student Radio, I'm Angela Bautista. I'll catch you next time. Hey, it's Sheila Raghavendran. Next week on ASR, my friend Timothy and his wife Emily are going to be playing a few songs and talking about their band, Edward and Jane. They'll be in Bloomington for their album release tour next weekend, and we can't wait to hang out with them. You're still young. Don't forget. You might regret it. Thank you for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students at Indiana University Bloomington. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Student Radio and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at ASR Voice. We broadcast new episodes every Sunday at noon on WIOX and stream on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash American student radio. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.